certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. The nights Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon disappeared, both can be seen in video surveillance footage taken from the Claremont area. The person who isn't seen on any security vision is their accused killer, Bradley Edwards. Hi, thanks for joining us. I'm Natalie Bongiolo and calling in, we've got the West's legal affairs editor, Tim Clark. And hi, and we're also welcome to this podcast for the first time, Tom Percy QC. Hi, Tom. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. I guess for those who don't live in WA, Tom specialises in criminal law. And Tom, are you, I mean, like the rest of us, as fascinated at this trial? Well, I'm interested in the trial. I don't think I have the same degree of obsessive fascination that uh, some aspects of the media have. Mm. But uh, <laughs> being uh, someone who does this on a daily basis for the last 40 years, you get a little immune to murder trials and things of that nature. And whilst this is interesting and I can accept that the public is somewhat invested in yep. it, uh, it's not something that uh, gets me out of bed in the morning. <laughs> but I guess you wouldn't be surprised by the public interest. No, look, you see these trials come and go over the last uh, 40, 50 years in Perth. We've had the odd one crops up every now in a decade when we do something like put a premier on trial. Uh, mm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you have to accept that these things uh, do from time to time uh, increase the level of interest in the justice system. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get stuck into today's evidence. Um, Tim, you saw more video of the night that Jane disappeared. Can you just talk us through what was in that vision? Yeah, there was lots more video, Nat, today, um, taken from various cameras on various angles, um, at various locations, the two main ones being the Continental Hotel, where Jane went um, first, or she went to the OBH, which is another hotel just out of Claremont Mm -hmm. first, that she went to the Continental first, spent a good um, couple of hours there and then there was um, the Club Bay View which we've discussed before was another pub just down the down the road about 200 metres down the road um, and she was um, on her way there with her friends um, when she made the, the fateful decision um, not to get in the taxi uh, with her friends um, who had also decided not to go so um, a bit like um, uh, you know many nights out it was, it was a bit freewheeling it was a bit random um, but um, it was, or, or, or most of the end of the night was captured on on film, on CCTV at those various locations, and that's what was shown today to basically put together a timeline of of um, of, of her arriving and then her interactions while in the in the hotel, and then obviously most important, um, her leaving. Um, and the actual footage, the last footage um, of her ever being seen alive, was was played today, where she's seen leaning on the on the pole outside the hotel, and then 32 seconds as the uh, as the camera rotation comes back towards the spot where she was, um, you know, literally one half minute she's there, and then one half minute she's not. Yeah, and I think we talked about this yesterday. The fact that this footage is on a loop and not constantly rolling. Tom, does that, um, I mean, do you think that sort of leaves some very wide gaps um, in, with this as evidence? 
Well, I, I don't think it's evidence of any great importance at all. I think the defence effectively agree that she was probably dead, that she may well have been abducted from Claremont at around about the time in question. Uh, I'm having difficulty as to why they need to fastidiously go through this uh, at any length at all. I mean, uh, she obviously disappeared from that location at around about that time and she's never been seen again. I, I just think they need to get on and try and find some evidence which actually implicates the accused. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that because I was thinking as well that sometimes some of the details and some of the questions and, you know, you do wonder the relevance of it. And, and I thought, well, you know, maybe is that because it becomes relevant down the track? Well, I think they want to leave no stone unturned and they don't want to suggest that, that, that any issue might arise later on, that she wasn't there on the night in question or that she didn't disappear at a particular time or there might be some other line of defence. But I wouldn't have thought that's going to come into it. The, the critical question at the end of the day is I'm understanding it from hearing both the prosecution opening and the defence opening, and that's where the great case is heading, is it's just a question that he didn't do it. Whatever happened to these girls is probably not greatly an issue, but the question is whether he was the perpetrator. And none of that evidence that we heard today, I wouldn't have thought, went any way whatsoever to being inclusive of him. Yeah, I think... I think Tom's right there, and probably the most important bit of all was what we didn't see, which was any footage of, of Mr. Edwards That's at any right. point or any cars um, linked to him um, at any point. Um, and uh, the, the police officer who was leading all this evidence through the prosecution was asked directly, did, did, uh, you know, in all the hundreds of hours that you reviewed, you know, several times, did you ever find any evidence of, of him um, in any of the footage? And the, the simple answer was uh, was no. So how many um, cars were filmed on, on these nights? I mean, there must have been a lot of them because some of the cameras were turned towards the streets, right? Yeah, so uh, I think we touched on this before um after in the in the heyday of of the macro investigation the claremont killers investigation the police put a covert camera in a boutique window in in bayview terrace um to ostensibly try and capture um persons going past but more importantly cars going past and they tried to configure the camera so it would capture um registration plates um, and we heard today that um, on the various nights in question when the footage was downloaded or, or you know or basically taken off that camera um, it, it was between 20 and 40 percent of all the cars that were that, that were seen on camera were able to be identified which is obviously a pretty low number mm. investigatively and and of all those that were captured and there were hundreds on the various nights but still out of thousands and thousands of cars that had gone past none of them um, could be uh, directly linked to, to Mr. Edwards or certainly Mr. Edwards' uh, members of Mr. Edwards' family, whether he, he might have borrowed a car on one of those evenings. So um, as, as thorough as the, uh, as the police were trying to be, I think the, uh, the technology sort of limited them somewhat in, in what they were able to capture. So, Tom, how important is that, that there's no evidence of a car matching Edwards' car? Look, at the end of the day, if there's some of his DNA or fibre material on the corpses, then uh, I don't think it really matters, does it? Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And that, I mean, as Tom said, it was all it was all very emotional and very poignant today, but uh, and yesterday, um, in terms of basically setting up what happened to the girls um, or the, the the young women, um, it didn't really 
take us any further. And obviously, if there had been evidence of Mr. Uh, Mr. Edwards on any of those tapes, then it would be laid and it would, and it would become bombshell evidence. But uh, the fact is, it's it's not there and uh, and never will be. Look, if it had have been if it had have been contemplated that anything like that was coming, uh, we would have heard about it in the prosecution's opening, and and that's mm-hmm. what I think we lose sight of sometimes and the public might not be au fait with, and that is the fact that in criminal trials these days, generally speaking, there's no bombshell evidence. You mm. hear about in the prosecution's evidence, if they've got an ace up their sleeve, they have to play it on that first day. Mm-hmm. Similarly with the defence, they usually would say what their case is, but uh, in terms of prosecution evidence, uh, you can generally uh, rely on the fact that what is coming is what we've already been told. So if anyone's sitting down there with bated breath, waiting for the smoking <laughs> right, so gun... so there's no smoking gun. There won't be any. If, anyone, if anyone's thinking that, you know, if they, they dropped in to watch the trial, they might just see Bradley Edwards pip, turn up in some of this random video or things like that, and, and there's a gasp factor about any evidence. <laughs> there was no gasp factor around the corner, I would think. So really, it, it's a matter of they're fleshing out the details that, you know, you're aware are coming. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly what's happening um, and, and will keep happening for, for many, many weeks to come. Yeah. Well, um, some of the witnesses today were, we obviously had the, the pictures of Jane on her last night there in Claremont, and then you had witnesses who were also talking about their final movements, and they, of course, were also in the footage. Um, how how were they reacting to that today? Yeah, well, um, certainly. So, two of the of the women that were out with Jane on that night and could be seen in that footage um, came to to give evidence in person and basically give their first hand account of how Jane was on the night and how they how they left her. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, you felt for them. Um, we've mentioned so many times these sliding doors moments, and that was another one when the first of those witnesses, a lady called Linda Donovan, just explained how um, they left the club, they were going to go to another club, decided they weren't and going to get in a cab. They waited for the cab, and then in, in those five or ten minutes while they were waiting for the cab, Jane decided that she wasn't going to come with them. Mm-hmm. They did get a cab, jumped in it, circled back and she actually wound the window down and shouted to Jane from across the street come on get in come on with we, come come with us and Jane just basically um you know shook her head and and, and said no and and so they drove off and and that's the last time um that they they saw their friend alive so you can obviously you, you feel for them um put in 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 that moment and what what that moment must have meant to them over the you know the, the past yeah. 20 years or so and, and Mrs. Donovan, or Mrs. Donovan, was obviously quite upset after she'd given her evidence. One of my colleagues um, basically held the door open for her. She let, well, left court, and she was she was tearful um, when that happened. Um, and, and as with all these personal witnesses, it's obviously a very emotional experience. Um, and it's and it was an emotional experience, I I, I guess, for for Jane's um, family who were here today, Adam and her brother and Lee, her sister, who were there and and, and, and watched the footage of the last time they saw her sister as well you know on that on that night so yeah i mean you know another sort of day of emotion and i know up until now you know we had heard so much about how cheerful jane was on that night and how happy she was but um there was you know quite a heartbreaking conversation had between her and her friend Yes, so this was another friend. This was the same friend, Linda Donovan, and then the other friend who confirmed it. 
But at one point in the night, Jane had become quite upset and quite down on herself. Um, I think she'd had a bit to drink. Um, and she, they basically went outside, which can be seen on the cameras. And, and Miss Donovan said that they were talking about how Jane had, was, you know, upset at herself. She felt like she was fat or she was ugly, or, um, you know, she, you know, she basically got emo- emotional about her own sort of um, emotions, um, which was, which was again hard to listen to, um, knowing that yeah. what you know was was coming, and for her to feel like that on that particular night, um, um, yeah, was was a was a really emotional thing to have to hear, mm-hmm. um, but. I mean, to be honest, that then the footage towards the end of the evening, um, just after midnight, showed her laughing and smiling and joking and, and interacting with people outside the uh, outside the hotel. So just again, one of those normal nights that sometimes you get you just maybe have a little bit too much to drink, yep. get a little bit emotional, mostly up, but sometimes down. I mean, I know sort of, uh, you know, as Tom mentioned, it's, it's you know, I'm not sure what bearing this actually has on the case, but I guess there is this feeling that people almost feel like they know her perhaps or they know the name so well and so, you know, um, it does affect people and how they, how they feel about hearing these details. So there's only one person who really counts in this, isn't it? And that's the judge. Mm. And the sort of evidence you sometimes see from prosecutors in a jury case and to sort of... You know, make the uh, deceased or the, the victim come to life and be a real person and uh, flesh out the whole situation just for the subconscious uh, empathy that it might get for the prosecution case. But this is a judge hearing the case and none of that goes anywhere. So if you had to measure in terms of yards how cl- or metres how close uh, the prosecution got on today's evidence to an ultimate conviction, I think you'd say zero. Yeah, right. I mean, that's interesting because we had speculated just how much a judge takes on board with these kind of things. Um, you know, we sort of said, well, you know, he's human, but of course this stuff doesn't come into it. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah, and as Tom says, I mean, the, 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 the difference different strings are pulled in, in jury trials and judge alone trials and, and I mean juries are not used to seeing this of scenario at all let alone the evidence and let alone something as horrific as this but um, with a judge alone and particularly a judge of Mr Hall's uh, Justice, Justice Hall's sort of standing and experience um, it, it might give him a, a, a better picture but I, as Tom says I don't think it would uh, would um, would go very far in, in making him determine guilt or innocence at all. Mm. Um, Tim, there was some vision played to the court um, from a BP service station on Stirling Highway. What did that show and, and how was that significant? Yeah, I'll, I'll be interested to get Tom's reading on this. Yeah. So on the night that Kira went missing, about seven o'clock, um, they, uh, the, the prosecution introduced some footage from a nearby BP station, which shows uh, a basically indistinguishable man, but you mm-hmm. can tell he was quite tall, dark-haired, sort of, you know, mid-twenties, um, buying some sort of product from this BP station. And, and the camera is from inside pointing outside, and it was like a, a sort of security cage type of affair, so you couldn't actually get into the to, to, to the kiosk, but he was obviously paying for something. Um and uh, and then he just went away, and um, you know we were all scratching our heads a little bit to to, to wonder what this was about. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then so Miss Barbara Gallo then said the relevance of this, Your Honour, is that we the the the, the defence will 
say that there were there is no footage whatsoever of Mr. Edwards at any point um, on any of these dates at any of these particular times. We say this shows that whether, while we can't affirmatively say that that person buying that product was Mr. Edwards, on the flip side, the defence can't definitively say it wasn't. So it was it was it was one of those sort of negatives to try and make a positive, if, if you like. Well, I, I had great difficulty with that as a defence lawyer. Uh, firstly, there's no onus on an accused person to say that it wasn't him. It's mm. for the prosecution to say that it was. And the most, uh, one of the most uh, important things in any criminal case is identification. And a, a judge would need to be satisfied beyond reasonable doubt to, before they placed any weight on that. So if the prosecution mm. make the concession, well, we can't affirmatively say it's him then it's of no evidentiary value, whatever. The day that Jane disappeared Mm -hmm. was the same day that a watch of hers was found. Yes. Um, So so we jump ahead basically 12 hours or so, and we had a witness who said he was riding a horse up in um, Wellard, which is at that time was a very rural area, about 45 kilometres away from Perth. So it was on the outskirts of Perth back then? Yeah, very much so, very much so. Um, And he was riding his horse. Um, There was a nearby stables and adjustment centre and and riding school there. Um, And he he turned on the Wellard Road um, and he testified that something had spooked his horse and basically threw him off and he ended up on Wellard Road. Um, And where he landed... um, almost the precise spot where he landed was a watch um, and and an attractive watch at that silver um, guess brand so you know not cheap I mean you know not a Rolex but certainly not a not a sort of ten dollar job and he found this watch and after he dusted himself off um, he decided to put it in his pocket um, led his horse back to the stables showed his girlfriend the watch and said look what I found after I got kicked from the horse um, and and basically took it home with him, um, and that was on the ninth, the the day after or just hours after Jane had gone missing. Yeah. Um, weeks later, um, sort of many many weeks later, Jane's body was discovered, and that obviously became a huge media story um, because there were basically now two girls had gone had vanished from Claremont, and it did, and it really did become a media sensation at the time, and it was that media coverage that prompted this chap to remember, um, well, I found that watch on Wellard Road. And so he basically went up there himself, back up there himself, um, and found the spot where Miss Rimmer's body had been discovered because a cross and some flowers had been placed there. And he put two and two together and almost immediately then contacted the police and said, I think I found a watch that could be hers. Um, and, and then it was it was later confirmed that it was her watch because um, friends and family members remembered her um, wearing it. But the, the, I mean, the the almost, you know, fantastical thing about it is Jane's body was less than two metres away from where this man had been ejected from his horse and landed. But, you know, finding the watch and, you know, dusting himself off, he, for whatever reason, never looked in that exact in that precise spot, and so it took another um, fifty five days for um, for Jane's body to be um, discovered. I, I don't know if this was asked in court. Was there any um, 
you know, speculation as to what could have spooked the horse? No, there wasn't. Um, And the prosecution lawyer who was asking the question of this witness specifically asked him for just a yes or no answer. Do you know what spooked the horse? And he said no. So, Mm. you know, uh, once again, open to pure speculation. Tom, I know um, you've got a lot of involvement with horses, <laughs> <laughs> apart from being a, a lawyer. Um, any any sort of thoughts there? <laughs> I, just, I, I knew that evidence was coming, and right. uh, I, I'm looking at it from whatever entry value it might have. I suppose it might uh, help to point in time when the body was based there, mm-hmm. Uh and confirms that the body had been there for a time much closer to the date of the death than when it was found. Um, And in that regard, it's got some marginal probative value, but again, in terms of the central issue in this case, can we link Edwards to the crime? I don't think it goes anywhere. Yeah. Tim, um, heading back into court and the uh, rest of the footage that you were shown today, uh, was this the first time that you got to see a glimpse of Kira Glennon? Yes, yeah, so we, we, we had been shown this footage very briefly during the opening um, of Miss Barbara Gallo, where she sort of used it as part of her PowerPoint presentation, but we saw it again today. Um, and uh, as much as... Jane was basically captured quite a lot on her mm-hmm. evening walking up and down Bayview Terrace. There were various angles of her inside and outside the hotel. Um, Kira was just caught on one camera for a very brief, like four or five seconds, just basically walking into the Continental Hotel. You could see her side on from a distance, um, uh, and that was it. Um, and that's and, that, and that's all the, the the police could find after uh, all their trawling through, obviously the nights on the, you know that night in particular. Um, and so, as, as Tom has alluded to, it puts her it puts her in 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 the area at the time that her friends said they were she was there. Yeah. Um, but that's pretty much that, that's pretty much all it does. It's almost a bit surprising because I think at that stage, I mean, we're talking about um, March 1997 and at that point they'd put up quite a few more security cameras through the area. So it does seem surprising that there's such little vision of her. Yeah, yeah. And and she was inside a lot more than Jane was. I think Jane Mm. was sort of in and out onto the streets and a lot of the cameras were sort of outward facing um, whereas there were only a couple that were actually internal in um, in the in the Conti at, at that time yeah. plus it was an you know it was absolutely still I mean we discussed yesterday the impact that these murders had on the area but it was still packed um, it was still very busy um, and and the, the footage to be honest was of very you know low tech quality as was Compared to even Club Bayview up the road, their cameras were better. But now it would be, it would be. Um, I think the common phrase is filmed on a potato. It looked, it looked terrible, um, and it was pretty hard to make out. So um, they've got it. Um, but, but I mean, once again, how, how far it takes us is uh, is, uh, is is not far. But there was an uh, eyewitness account of Kira later in the night. Yes, yes. And they were, I mean, they were, she was with friends from the law firm that she worked. Um, and so we, we, we will most likely um, hear from those in, in the coming days and weeks as to um, as to what she did. Um, and that was basically went out, went to the Conti, did, didn't even 
stay long enough for a drink and then left um, to get a, to ostensibly to get a cab, um, um, very much like Sarah and Jane had done before her. Um, so we haven't heard that evidence yet, um, but it, once again, it will it will it will put her movements on the night um, into context. The more important witnesses basically will be after she left because there's these various sightings of Kira walking down the street, and the very last sighting. Um, is, is probably the best one in terms of evidentiary value to the prosecution because that puts her leaning into a white Commodore car um, of, of which obviously we know that it, there, are, there are links to, to Mr. Edwards um, and these, these earlier sort of Telstra living witnesses that, are, that we've already heard of. And are these, these um, the group of guys, I guess, that, uh, the, the Burger Boys, is that yeah, the... Yeah, so, so that's how they were framed in the opening. There were three chaps that had gone to Hungry Jack's just down the road, which is a burger joint, um, to get their food, and they were sitting at a bus stop eating that food when they uh, when they saw who they think is, is Kira. And today we saw video footage of them, so that puts them in the area. Right. So, you know, they, 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 you know, it can't be said that they're, they're making it up. They, you can see them sort of walking around the area um, and uh, no doubt they will be called to give that, that eyewitness account of, of the woman that they say they saw walking down Sterling Highway and then leaning into that car and then getting into that car. Uh, Tom, in, just in your analysis of the trial so far, I mean, is it going how you would expect it to go? Well, I really had no expectations, mm. but... Um, I would have thought that uh, if you're expecting it to be proceeding as a, you know, a bulldozer driving a path inexorably towards the guilt <laughs> of the, uh, it's uh, it's missing a couple of gears. Yes, it it um, at, at the pace at which it's going and the amount of details that are being gone over, could you see that it could extend longer than what's anticipated? Look, I think it's going quite well at the moment and quite quickly, um, notwithstanding that a lot of the evidence doesn't have an enormous amount of probative value in a judge-alone trial. Uh, I think we'll really hit a speed bump when the DNA evidence starts to come because nothing frustrates and slows a trial down and bogs you down uh, with flat (laughs) tyres like tested scientific evidence. And... uh, From what I heard from the opening, the sort of things that are are going to be put in issue uh, in relation to several sets of uh, DNA tests is going to be mind-numbingly boring. (laughs) (laughs) And also, and Tom, I mean, they're going to talk about continuity and they're going to talk about cross-contamination and they're also going to talk about tiny, tiny um, fragments of DNA which are basically so tiny that they've all been exhausted now. I mean, when you get experts and then ex- opposing experts sort of um, talking about that, I mean, it, I mean, it's going to take weeks and weeks and weeks of, on, on each sort of little topic, you would have thought. That's right. Yeah. And, and then that, the other complicating factor when we do get that is that some of these experts are, are overseas. Um, yeah. Jonathan Whitaker, who's going to be the... the, the the um, the prosecution sort of star forensic witness he's he's in he's in the UK um, the lady who's going to back up his um, conclusions is in New Zealand uh, Tom given this is a judge only trial does it make it easier for these particularly the experts who are going to be talking about the DNA and the scientists and what have you that it is so complex that if it was a jury would they have had to 
go to such great lengths to make it understandable to the average person? Does it make it easier that it's not a jury? Well, I think it does. You can assume that judges have experience with these sorts of issues and uh, you can proceed hopefully at a slightly quicker pace, although there are so many issues, as Tim said, to be covered in a contested case where there's continuity issues. Now, I don't know if your listeners know what continuity is. That means you've got to prove who was the first person who took hold of the sample right, from, the, mm. from the deceased body. And then we went to that. And you have to call every person who had any part in its custody or safekeeping over the next 25 years. So <laughs> you can imagine how that is going to uh, play out. And usually most, most cases where there's forensic evidence get to trial within a, a year or two of that happening. So the, the chain of custody is reasonably quite simple because it was given to a police officer who kept it in a safe or took it to Pathwest. Mm-hmm. So there's only three or four people you, who've ever actually had care or control of those samples. But over 25 years, especially where Pathwest has shifted and where those samples have actually been sent to England at some stage mm-hmm. uh, for analysis. It is a, a mind-boggling exercise that I would not be looking forward to. Yeah. And then on top of what Tom's just said, this isn't just one set of very important samples. We've got um, you know, th- at least three vital um, sort of DNA samples, um, one of which or two of which Mr. Jovic is suggesting might have come into contact with each other, um, which mm-hmm. is why that that. that he says Mr. Edwards' DNA appears under Kira's fingernails because the, the basically the rape kit from Karakata has somehow come into contact with that. And then on top of all that, you've got all the fibres as well, which were taken from, you know, you know basically body parts, hair masses that, were, that had been kept, stored in freezers for years and years and years and then retested, um, you know, years after the fact. So, I mean, yeah, as Tom says, you can imagine the, the, uh, all the people that have come into contact or had anything to do with this case over the years, they're all going to have to be called, particularly the ones that have handled the um, the handled the the. the the, uh, the samples in, in question. Yeah, this is when well, we... The other thing is, in relation to the DNA evidence, there's another uh, potential spanner in the works, is that one of the chief DNA people who's responsible for uh, the care and control of this is a bloke called Laurie Webb, who uh, left, the, left the service in uh, dubious circumstances some time back. Mm, yeah, under, under, under a dark cloud for supposedly cutting some corners on his, on, on his role, which was the oversight of samples and how you would double-check them and all that type of thing. So that was a big that became a very big deal um, a few years ago in Western Australia, and it led to a lot of cases being re-looked at. And the fact that Mr. Webb's um, you know, name is, is linked now with the biggest case, and, uh, and it wasn't just a, you know, a general oversight. He was the person on the plane to the UK with Miss Glennon's fingernail clippings, which are basically the, you know, the, the heart and soul of the DNA evidence. So I'm sure, very sure, we'll be hearing a lot of Mr. Webb's name um, when the time comes. Okay, well, before I let you both go, I've just got a couple of quick questions from listeners. Um, uh, Kylie Smith was wanting to know how big the legal team is for each side and is it quite inequitable, I guess? Um, Yeah, well, we touched on this before. Um, So on on the opening day, there were 11 lawyers on the prosecution side. There were six lawyers on the defence side. Um, 
that, that's been trimmed down a bit um, as we've gone along. I, I counted today six on the defence side and five, uh, six on the prosecution side, sorry, and five on the defence side. Um, but I, I think the most notable was was the um, was the costs that were basically released by our state government here um, just just after the the trial had started and basically the prosecution side has spent twice as much money um, on the prosecution as the defence has been able to spend um, with with legal aid. Look, I don't think uh, Tim would ever pretend that uh, all the lawyers involved in a case can be cited in court. There's <laughs> <a lot of laughs> going on back uh, in the respective offices but uh, you know, legal aid's budget is very tight and uh, you know, most cases that you do in legal aid, you're lucky if you can get a solicitor acting on the case with the barrister. Uh, usually, I, they wouldn't. If I did a legal aid case, they wouldn't give me a junior, and I'm lucky to get a solicitor acting on the case. Whereas the prosecution have unlimited resources. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, there is a massive, uh, there is a massive uh, bias in favour of the prosecution in terms of how many people they would have on the case. Mm. But having said that. They probably need it because they have the onus of proof. They've got to mm-hmm. prove it. The yes. person doesn't have to prove anything and he doesn't even have to give evidence if he doesn't want to. He doesn't have to rebut any of the scientific evidence and he doesn't have to call witnesses to rebut anything that's put against him. So, you know, you can understand the prosecution do need a big team, but they have got a big team. Yeah. And, Tom, another question for you from Sarah. She wants to know, would Mr Edwards be given another opportunity to change his plea before Justice Hall makes a decision? Uh, An accused person can change their plea even after the jury's gone out. So uh, if he wants to change his plea, Mm. uh, he could do it at any stage that he wanted to. There is... doesn't need an opportunity. He can get up and say that at any stage, but... uh, I wouldn't have thought I'd see that coming. No. Okay, great. Well, thank you both for your time today. Thanks for joining us, Tom. And thank you, Tim, for your coverage today. Thanks, guys. And we'll be back tomorrow for Day 14, and we'll chat to you then. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy, and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.